0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him.
1: Good morning. Our passage for today is John 13:31 through 14:4. 4. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going.
0: Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you all. Uh, Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would teach us from your word. Teach us how to follow you, how to follow your Son who points us to you. Teach us, God, how to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit so we can walk with you, Father and Son. We only have your grace and peace through fellowship with Him, the Spirit. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us today. And, God, we come in here with fears, with disappointments and anxieties struggles and temptations and God we cast our burden upon you today knowing that your burden your yoke is easy and light and so we trade with you God we take your concerns we take your worries and your anxieties which are none we take your peace we take your lightheartedness we take your joy this morning Jesus we trade our sin and our struggle and our weakness for your perfect peace this morning God, I pray that you'd be with us now, that you'd use me as an instrument to teach your people. In your name we pray, amen. So on June 18th, 1940, Winston Churchill stands before the House of Commons in England, and he gives the speech of his life. He says, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty, and so bear ourselves that if the British Commonwealth and Empire lasts for a thousand years, men will say, this was their finest hour. Great line. Speech of a lifetime. And with those words, with that speech he gave, England embarks into a five-year war with Hitler's Germany. And Of course, they come out of that war, that battle, triumphant. But they did have to go against the cruel darkness of Hitler's Germany. But historians point to that speech that moment before the House of Commons as the, the, the origin of their hope, where England realized, we can do this. We can march forward in the darkness of Hitler's cruelty. Jesus, this morning, gives his famous last speech. This is what theologians call the final discourse. This is his last teaching to the disciples before he departs and leaves. And just like with Churchill's speech, That gave hope in the midst of darkness, this speech, this final discourse gives us hope, his followers, in the midst of our night that we must endure. So go with me to verse 30, John chapter 13, verse 30. Let me just set up the situation here. It says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, this is Judas, he immediately went out, period. And it was night. Now John, as an author, is highly metaphorical, highly symbolic, He's not just telling us what time of the day it was. The night is meant to be a metaphor for the evil that is about to happen. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus calls this time of of his ministry of the story the hour of the power of darkness. So the night that John's referring to here is something ominous, something evil and wicked that's about to take place, but also further describes What the disciples are about to experience, which is the loss of their teacher, the loss of their friend, and the disappointment, and disorientation, and grief, and sadness that they're going to have to experience now. They're in the night, and we are also in the night. And so Jesus here is giving his last speech before he returns, is killed, murdered, and returns to the Father. He sets this up for us in verse 31, so go ahead and go there with me. It says this, Jesus says this, when he had gone out, Judas has left, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, meaning the Son of Man is about to be crucified on the Roman cross. That's his glory. The reason why Jesus says this is his glory is because when Jesus dies on the cross, that demonstrates and displays he is the obedient Son of God. He obeyed the Father even to the point of death, death on a cross, so he's glorified. glorified. But in this, look what he says, God is glorified in him. So in this act of suffering and death, God, God, the Father, is also glorified. Now what does that mean? That means in Jesus's moment on the cross, we have no better vivid picture of who the Father is. The clearest revelation of God's nature and character is the cross. That's his moment of glory too. So the Son glorified in the cross he is shown to be the obedient son and in his obedience he shows us the father the father is glorified in him so look what jesus says next in verse 32 i'll read this slowly so we get this because this gets a little confusing jesus says if god is glorified in him the son through the cross god will also glorify the son in himself the father so what does that mean that means after the son is glorified on the cross crucified on the cross The Father will glorify him in himself, meaning he will bring the Son back to the Father. Reunite the Son back to the Father's presence, and he will glorify him at once. So Jesus is talking about not just his death, but his resurrection, his ascension, his reunion with the Father. And so Jesus, realizing that he is telling his disciples, I'm leaving, I'm departing, he says in verse 33, little children, a term of endearment. Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So this is goodbye. For now. Jesus will return. As certain as the sun will rise, Jesus will come back. But until then, it is night. It is night. Now, we don't really have a great... Uh, understanding of, of what the reality of night is because we live in the modern times where we have electricity and light whenever we please. But I lost, we, we lost our power a few weeks ago. A tree fell on a power line near our house, and we were without power, without light for a whole entire evening. And I'll tell you this, the darkness is disorienting. You, you lose track of time, you get, you get bored, And there's a sense of helplessness. Like you're really at the mercy of the conditions. You're at the mercy of whatever's going to happen. And that's how we feel in our modern times where we still have smartphones that have their charge left over. Now imagine in the ancient times, in ancient Palestine, what the night is, what the experience of darkness is. It's not safe. If you get lost in the Palestinian desert, good luck, you know? If you're alone on a road in the middle of the night, you're vulnerable, The night has undertones of danger, of stress, of insecurity. We are vulnerable and at high risk. John is summoning us to imagine the time between Jesus's crucifixion and when he returns, that time which we are living in now, that is the night. We are in the night. Now, where we're at in the grand scheme of things is we're, it's like we're in that moment just before the sun rises over the dawn, but it's still pitch black. Jesus is coming, but we are still in the night because Jesus is absent. So we will experience heartache and disappointment and loss and doubt and weariness and suffering and temptation and persecution we will struggle with sin, struggle with depression, struggle with loneliness, struggle with mortality, struggle with desires unfulfilled. This is the night. We experience the night. And so the question I have is, how will we outlast the night? How are we going to make it through this dark age before the, the next age comes? Three answers for today. One, we make it through the night By the presence of one another. Two, by the promise of Jesus. And three, by the power of the Holy Spirit. All Ps, so you should be able to remember them. Presence of one another, promise of Jesus, power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we make it through our night. So let's start with presence of one another, okay? Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. This is Jesus talking. Here's the commandment, the new commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, upon first reading this, this doesn't seem like a new commandment, does it? Because all throughout your Old Testament, you're going to see many times where God expects his people to be kind and loving to one another, to be hospitable to one another. This kind of sentiment isn't alien to the rest of the Bible. This isn't the first time somebody has been saying something like this. So, what's so new? About this commandment to love one another. What's new? But Jesus says it's a new commandment. What's, what's new about it? Well, it's how Jesus qualifies it. He says, Just as I have loved you, so you love one another. See, the mystery in the entire Old Testament is now disclosed. The mystery is that the Messiah himself would become the sacrificial lamb and offer himself as the atonement for our sin. It's not something we earned. It's not something we deserved. It's not something that Jesus was obligated to do, but Jesus, in loving humility, agreed with the Father before the foundations of the earth that he would come and die for a world who would reject him. That's love. A selfless kind of love, a love that uh, has no strings attached, nothing held back, that's the kind of love that Jesus displays that's now been made clear. That's the standard. We are to love one another like that. And as a result, verse 35, look what happens. What's the product of this great love that we would have for one another? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is only logical, right? If a whole community of people love one another like Jesus loves us, then of course the world's going to take notice, right? Because that is a powerful community of love. Now, I don't know if you've ever been um, like in a public place where a flash mob started occurring. It's on my bucket list. It hasn't happened to me yet. Uh, maybe one day. You can all plan that maybe for my birthday or something. <laughs> But I'd imagine, okay, I'd imagine that if that were to happen, at first it's probably really awkward and startling, like what in the world? This is weird, like out of nowhere. But once the jarring effect dies off, you can't stop looking, right? It just, it just, it just pulls you in. You, can't, you just can't stop looking at what you're witnessing. That's what the Christian community is supposed to be. Like our love for one another this love that's characterized by the cross is supposed to at first be jarring and a little bit unsettling. It makes people maybe uh, offended or it's kind of weird to people or strange to people that we would love one another this deeply and seriously, but after a while, they can't take their eyes off of us because what we have, they need. What we have, they deeply actually want. You know the word Christian, like we're all Christians here, right? You, you know what the word Christian means, Christianos? It means a little Christ. And it's not something we made up. If you were to go to Acts chapter 11, the Christians in the church in Antioch, it says that at that point in time, people looked at that church and they said that's when they were started to be called Christians. Like We didn't make the word Christian up. Outsiders did. And it probably was a mockery at first. It probably was said in jest. Like, oh, look at those Christianos, those little Christs. What a compliment, though, because the church was living with one another in such a way that they looked like Jesus to one another. And it just, it became the title that stuck ever since, Christianos, little Christs. That's who we are. So this is only the logical result, right? That the world's gonna take notice when we love each other like this. But all of this hinges, I'll remind you, on whether or not our love is cross-shaped, right? If our love is defined and motivated by the cross of Christ his death bonhoeffer dietrich bonhoeffer my boy he gave his life opposing the right uh, opposing the compromise of the german church and he says when christ calls a man he comes him bid and die like as if that's the standard when you enter into christianity you enter into agreement that your life is no longer about you you're going to die to yourself So it should be no surprise that Jesus calls us to die for ourselves for the sake of one another since that's what he did for us. Folks, if we are going to be this kind of community that Jesus has in his imagination, we have to be committed to his standard. To dying to ourselves for the sake of the other person for the Father's glory. We have to be committed to this vision for life together. Look, I love doctrine. I love, it's been all my training most of you who know me know I'm secretly a huge nerd and I love theology, but here's what I've realized. Mature Christians are not those who know all the answers to every single question. I'm not, I'm not downgrading doctrine. Doctrine's important. We'll get to that. Okay, we'll talk more about that. But mature Christians are those who let what they know change them, who let what's in their head seep down into their heart so powerfully that it changes the way they love other people. Like, it doesn't really matter what you know about Jesus if your heart is not like Jesus's. I remember uh, in chapel in college we had a guest speaker come through. I remember his sermon. He preached a sermon, but his final point in his sermon was he had the sign above his door that just said the word others. And the, his his landing of his sermon was it's all about others. Like we're called to live for others. To live a life of love for others, and I, as like a twenty-year-old college student, just laughed like, "How, how elementary!" And that showed my immaturity, but his maturity, because like mature Christians love other people. Show me somebody who loves another person, and I'll show you somebody who has a heart like Jesus's. So show me someone who will lay down their privileges, their rights, and their comforts, and their priorities for the sake of another person, and I'll show you somebody who who is a mature Christian. That person gets it. They get it. And that person's going to leave an impression on the world. So let me just shoot straight with you and tell me what this looks like here at Citizens Church. I'm going to run through it, okay? Here's what it looks like here for us. This kind of love for one another. And remember, this is the only way we're going to make it through the night. It looks like inviting someone over to hang out even when you don't particularly enjoy that person for the sake of that person being known and loved. It looks like moving beyond the immediate friend group that you have and sacrificing time and energy so someone on the fringe is known and loved. It looks like serving on Sunday, showing up on Sunday, prioritizing small groups so that your presence can be a blessing to somebody else. It looks like forgiving someone, swallowing pride, and exiting a victim mindset. It looks like blessing, not cursing. It looks like commending, not gossiping. It looks like rejoicing in the good things about each other instead of dwelling on the negative things about each other. It looks like praying for one another. You know, this kind of love, this Christian love, it's so special. It's so special because it's, it just is a life that's not about me. It's a life that lives by the mantra that the world does not revolve around me. It's not about me. My life is not even about me, it's about others. And that catches the world's attention, I guarantee you. The world will take notice, I guarantee you. Um, you know, right now, that therapy is in extremely high demand. And in the community of therapists, all the therapists are, are just drained and exhausted and fatigued because of this demand right now for so many people to have counseling and therapy. Now, I don't mean to oversimplify the issue of mental health and the complexity of it all, but I will say this. What this phenomenon shows right now, this demand uh, for, for therapy and therapists, is that people really need to process stuff. People will just need someone to talk to. People just want, really, really deeply want to be known and loved. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting. Before the Enlightenment, do you know, did you know that therapy and counseling uh, was actually just a ministry of the church? Like, if you wanted therapy and to talk about your feelings and what you were going through, you'd go to the local parish, and that's where you'd find therapy, and that's where you'd find counseling. Now, over the course of time, of course, through the Enlightenment, secular and sacred was divided. The individual and the institution was divided, and the church forfeited that ministry to the world. But here's what I'm trying to say. If you've ever really been in deep in Christian community, really committed and ingrained in Christian community, you know that that community can function a lot like therapy and counseling because you're heard, you're known, you're loved, you're guided, you're seen, you're acknowledged. And like what the world's clamoring for right now is what the church is and should be. A community that loves one another. has time for one another. And gives our presence to one another. Is highly, highly, highly relational with one another. Now, I know we're in the night. That's, that's the backdrop to the sermon. That's the backdrop to this passage right here. But Philippians 2 calls us light of the world. 1 Thessalonians 5 calls us children of the light and children of the day. It's like us Christians are flames of light in the pitch black darkness. Like Jesus was light in the dark, now we are. So the world should take notice. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to to the believer. Psalm 16 says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom is all my delight. Do you believe that? That the people here you're with, that those around you right now are a gift to you? That this one another that Jesus has called us to and envisions for us, that that's a gift to you, a resource to you, a great blessing to you? You know, I can always tell how, what someone's spiritual health is as a pastor, how they're really doing based on how they feel about church and how they feel about those at the church. And if they have a desire and a longing to be around people in the community, there's a direct effect. If you're in relationship with Jesus and being loved by him, the natural, the natural result is you love one another. You want to be around God's people. You, you're, you count it a blessing to be numbered among God's people. You think that another person in this community is a source of incomparable joy and strength to you. This is Jesus' vision for us, and it's how we're going to make it through the night. We are a gift to one another. In Citizens Church, this is what Jesus is calling us to, this kind of high standard of relational love and commitment to one another. And I guarantee you, because Jesus guarantees us, the world will take notice. They will see and in time, they'll be attracted to. They'll want to be in. We make it through the night by the presence of one another. Now, we also make it through the night by the promise of Jesus. Jesus has given us an incredible promise. Start with me in verse 36. Jump there with me. Some Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, here's what I love. Jesus is just talking about Elaborating on this incredible love that, that we're supposed to have for one another. And Peter just like totally misses it. He's such a, a dodo, you know? That's like Carter's favorite word. He's, such a, he's, he's so dull sometimes. But you know what? Just this is a total rabbit trail for a second. That's not, that just gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> you know? Like Peter was used incredibly by the Lord, even though he was just a thick headed uh, uh, goose sometimes. It just gives me a lot of hope that that any of us can be used by God. So this is what Peter says. Jesus responds in verse 36, continues on in verse 36. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. So I'm going, I'm going to be absent. You can't come with me. You You can't be in my presence, Peter, until afterward, he says, until afterward. Now, afterward there, that's a reference to Peter's death. After Peter's death, he'll be with Jesus, but not until then. So you gotta let that settle in, like it is right now. You gotta let that linger. That Jesus lets it linger. Peter, you're not coming with me. And so he says in chapter fourteen, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let don't don't let your hearts be troubled. Now the word trouble here, it's interesting. This is the same word used of Jesus when he saw Mary in the crowds mourning over Lazarus when he had died. It says that he was deeply troubled. This this word in the original language, it, it's like. It's profound grief, profound sadness. So that's what these disciples are experiencing right now because this is their friend, their mentor, their teacher. This is the most formative years of their life, the the most incredible season of life they've ever had, and now he's going, and they're not going to see him again. This is goodbye. C.S. Lewis, in grief observed, he talks about his wife when she had passed, and he says, the death of a beloved is like an amputation. He says, her absence is like the sky spread over everything. And so that's what the disciples are feeling. Just this this forthcoming loss and the sadness that goes with it. This is the night. Jesus is not with us. He's not with them. So here's what he says in verse 1 as we keep on going. Believe in God. So whatever hope and trust you have in God and his words and his character, he says, Believe also in me. Trust me. So he says, trust me. I'm going to tell you something right now that's going to get you through the night. That's going to mend your your hurting heart. Here's what he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now this isn't literal, this is a metaphorical language, symbolic language that helps us understand what glory will be like. It's like we're going to be reunited with one another. And why do I say that? Because he says, he gives us this picture of a huge mansion with many rooms. What are all the rooms for? So we can all be together, so we all can live together, but who's going to be there? He says, this is my father's house and I will be there with you. So it's a family reunion. All of us, the family of God, reunited with our Heavenly Father and our older brother, Jesus. That's what glory is going to be like. That's the promise He's giving us. A family reunion. At the end of this night, when the day dawns, we will see one another again. We will meet each other at the shores. We will cross the threshold of glory together, and we will rejoice forevermore. And all those people who prayed for us for generations, All those people who've invested in you and generations before you and your family. So many people that I have to thank for leading my parents to the Lord that brought me here to this day. We will be reunited in glory together in the Father's mansion. And He will be with us and we will be with Him. And we will be with the Son who will commune with the Spirit. It's going to be incredible. The best day of your life is just a shadow of the substance that is to come. Our heavenly, glorious reunion. And Jesus gives us this promise. It's going to happen. And he actually grounds this promise in logic. So it's not just arbitrary. This isn't just opiate for the masses, as Nietzsche would say. Like, this is real. Look at verse 2 again. He says, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? There's logic there that helps us ground this promise in reality. What is it? He's saying, Would I lie to you? Like, examine Jesus' character. His, he asks his friends to do so. We should do it too. Go ahead and read the Gospels. What's Jesus like? Is he a charlatan? Like, is he a con man out for himself? Is he just trying to deceive the masses to gather power and majority for himself? No, he's never been like that. Would he lie to them? Would he give them a promise that's an empty promise? No his character and his life tell us that would never be the case verse 3 this promise is grounded in logic he says i will come again and will take you to myself that where i am you may be also the argument there is uh, is argument from greater to lesser he's saying if i've done the harder thing the greater thing won't i do the easier thing if i've already gone to prepare a place for you and i've sealed that and and promised that by my blood will I finish what I started? Won't I come and bring you there? That's, the, that's just the easiest step of it all. I've already done the hardest thing by dying and resurrecting. Won't I come and bring you to myself? And so we have this incredible promise that's grounded in logic and grounded in reality. When I think about eternity, I think about the Cincinnati Bengals because a few years ago we were in the Super Bowl and we lost and I didn't sleep at all that night. I didn't sleep one wink. I was so upset. But if they had, I was so sad. <sighs> but if they had one, okay? If they had one, you know what? I still would have been sad a little bit. Because you don't want football season to end. I mean, you really, you want it to keep going. There's something innate in us that longs for the parade and the celebration because of the champion to never end. Like that, this is the worst thing about a good song is it ends. That's the worst thing about a good story is it ends. That's the worst thing about a relationship is it ends. That's the worst thing about the best things is they come to an end. And that just doesn't really jive, does it? What does that suggest? This... this, this Inclination we have to want to enter into never ending celebration because of the champion. It suggests that these desires that we have within us were never meant to be fulfilled in this life, but instead to arouse something, to suggest something of the real thing that is to come. So every desire we have, it will be fulfilled in glory. It will be fulfilled in glory and it's promised by Jesus. And so you can make it through the night. We can make it through the night because of the great gift that we have in one another. I hope you believe that. And also because of the promise we have from Jesus himself and what we have to look forward to. It's going to be incredible. Third, and last, we make it through the night by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I want to say. This is probably the most important point. Because those first two points, the love we have for one another and this promise of Jesus, it falls flat. It doesn't really happen. It doesn't really invade our lives in a powerful way unless we realize the gift that we have in the person of the Holy Spirit. He makes these things real to us supernaturally. So we make it through the night by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. It's just one little verse, but it gives us sort of an introduction to where where Jesus is going to take us and he's going to teach us about the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, <clears throat> Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. You know, friends, the way to where I am going. You know. Now, Jesus is going to be absent. He's going to depart, but he talks here as if we're not going to be left on our own. He talks here like we're not going to be left in a state of confusion, like we're dumbfounded about what we should do next and how this is all going to work out. Like we're in the night But we're not meant to walk through the night confused, with our head down, disheartened. He talks here like it should be the reverse completely. Like we know where he is going. We know. We walk through the world with confidence. And so Jesus is going to talk about, of course, the classic verse next, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through him, that that the way that we enter into this eternal state is through him. But now he gets really, I think, to the very bottom of it here in verses 16 through 18. He tells us how we can even be connected to him, okay? Verses 16 through 18, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Look here though, you know him, friends, for he dwells with you That's Jesus, the presence of God with them in person. And he says, and will be in you. I leave you not as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is telling us that we make it through the night, through the loneliness, the struggle, the temptation, the times of doubt and confusion. We make it through the night because he has given us a helper, the spirit of truth, the Spirit of Sonship, that we are children of God. Romans chapter 8 says that we cry out in our hearts, Abba, Father, with words we cannot express because the Spirit has been imparted to us. So how does this all work? How does this actually, how does he help us make it through the night? It seems like what Jesus is teaching here is that the Spirit guides us in truth. So what does that mean? That means the Spirit tells you what is true about you and about reality. So what's true? Because of Jesus and all He's done. You are loved. Here's your identity. You're righteous. God is sovereign. Here's His promises. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Spirit of God within us imparts to us supernaturally this confidence of what is true even when we don't feel like it even when we don't see it or when our circumstances don't align with that truth the spirit of god reinforces deep within us that this is all real that this is happening ephesians 1 says it like this in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we walk through life with assurance that the promise of Jesus is real, that family reunion is real, and we will not be disappointed. Let me get a little technical here, okay? I just want to teach us what this gift is, the Holy Spirit, so incredible. Uh, Verse 18, go there with me again. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Underline that word come. I will come to you. He says it again in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, my Father will love him, and we will come, there it is again, come, same word, come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus says, I will come to you. There in verse 23, he says, the Father and I will come to you. Now here's what's interesting. When you go back up to verse 3, Jesus says to Peter and the apostles, I will come again and will take you to myself. But there he's talking about when we die. Jesus is going to Bring us to heaven. Our, our, our disembodied spirits to heaven will be reunited with him in heaven until the resurrection. So on one hand, he will come to us at the end of it all, when we, when we pass, when we expire. But here he's saying, even in the present, we will come to you, which means this. And that's the Holy Spirit, of course. But here's what this means. That the forthcoming glory in union we will enjoy with Father and Son in heaven is already happening in measure by the Holy Spirit now. Our forthcoming glory of heaven is imparted to us now already. And so we walk through earth like it's heaven on earth because the very environment and atmosphere of heaven has been infused into us. Even when it feels like like hell on earth, we can endure because the Spirit makes it like it's heaven on earth. That's the point of the Holy Spirit, is he comes and assures us of our destiny and our inheritance of what is true and what is coming our way. But one other thing, okay, one other thing the Holy Spirit does, and it's like two sides of the same coin. Go to verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 34. And again, Jesus says there, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, and so that begs the question, how do we receive and feel and experience Jesus' love? That's the only way we're going to love one another, is if we first know his love. How do we, how do we know his love? It's through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Another way to say that the Spirit gives us assurance of our destiny, sets a seal upon us, confirms that this is all real in a supernatural, personal, subjective way. Another way to say that is the Spirit assures us that God loves us, that we are His children, that He delights in us, that we are the object of His affection. He loves us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He confirms that to our heart over and over and over again. Now, friends, we're going to make it through the night if we love one another and if we believe in the promises of Jesus. And I hope you've seen here that the Holy Spirit makes those two things possible. He imparts into our heart God's love so that we can love one another. He imparts into our hearts the confidence in God's promises that they are real. The only way we make it through the night is if we learn how to walk with the Holy Spirit and have relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I know when I say that, some of you get a little weird. When we talk about fellowship with the Holy Spirit, it seems strange, but I assure you it's not. It's totally biblical, and it should be normal. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the, what? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We are meant to have relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. Have fellowship with the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. And if we don't, it will be very hard to make it through the night. So I'm telling you, here's, I guess here's what I'm saying. It's not enough to possess theory about God. You have to have experience with him. And the greatest mistake that you can make as a Christian is thinking that knowing doctrine and possessing biblical knowledge is the stuff of following Jesus, as if that's all there is. There's, that's not. That's foundational but you really short-circuit yourself and stunt your Christian growth if that doctrine, what you know about God, doesn't become a personal, rich experience to you in your daily life. Some of us make the mistake of thinking that because we know a lot, because we've been to church for a long time, because we can rehearse doctrine over and over, that we have, this, uh, we have a relationship with God. And you might, but it might just be a very immature and stoic relationship with God. We have to learn how to have a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Henry Blackaby, a pastor and author, says this. He might say it better than I am. He says this The fact is, theology is extremely important in the life of a Christian. However, while theology should inform a Christian's relationship with God, it should never take its place. When you become a Christian, a collection of doctrines does not take up residence within you, Christ does. When you are converted, you do not yield your will to a set of theological maxims, but to the Lord of life. Doctrines do not save or transform lives. Christ does. You do not pray to a doctrine. You pray to a person. Merely to believe and understand a doctrine is not to experience the abundant life Christ desires for you. In order to do that, you need to experience a person. The doctrine can not lead you to Christ, can, sorry, excuse me, can lead you to Christ, but it can never substitute for him. Why would a person choose a static theology over experiencing the living Christ? Some people are more comfortable dealing with doctrines than they are with responding to a living, ruling, righteous God. The Pharisees were diligent theologians who spent untold hours reading the scriptures and debating minute aspects of theology. Ironically, the same laws they scrutinized highlighted the grave error of their ways. Jesus did not condemn them for studying the scriptures, but for elevating the scriptures above the Messiah to whom the scripture directed them. The tragedy of many has been that they immerse themselves in studies about Jesus while never coming to know him personally. They devote their entire lives to studying doctrine, even teaching it, yet they miss the unmatchable joy of experiencing God personally. Too often, Christianity is is just an intellectual exercise for some of us. Now, your heart can't love what your mind doesn't know. You have to have truth. You have to have doctrine. You have to have sound teaching. But that truth is meant to push us into deep and abiding fellowship with God. The Greek early church, as they considered this doctrine of the Trinity, which was in its early formation, they, they called this, uh, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, they had a word for it called parachoresis parachoresis. You hear the word choreography in there. They called it the dance. The Trinity was a dance. Three members giving and receiving love and perfect harmony, orbiting around one another in total selflessness. And what the early church taught and believed was that we could get caught up in the Trinity. That we could get caught up in the choreography and the dance of the triune God. But Jesus tells us that the way we do that is through the Holy Spirit. It gives us the Holy Spirit so we can be caught up in the dance too. So I want to end by giving some application here on what it looks like to fellowship with the Holy Spirit and get caught up in the dance. Okay, first, pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. Do you have fear and anxiety and shame? Do you like feel those sensations typically in your life? Now, some of you might think, not think this is important. Some of you just want to like push beyond this, not think about this, ignore this, not think this is an important part of following Jesus. But I am becoming convinced that it's really not possible, possible to be totally spiritually mature unless you're emotionally mature. See, the Holy Spirit within us, he wants to do a work of deep healing and maturation in us. So that shame and fear and anxiety that you have in your body, if you're not willing to actually acknowledge that they're there and address why they are there, the Holy Spirit cannot minister to those things to put salve on those wounds. And if you're not willing to acknowledge those deep, traumatic, hard wounds and emotions that cause fear and anxiety and shame in your life, if you're not willing to do the hard, deep work of acknowledging those things with God and fellowship with God, You will remain stunted in your Christian faith. There will be aspects of yourself that are totally cut off from God. And there will be aspects of yourself that is not available to be a blessing to other people. And you will remain stunted. And so you have to be aware of yourself. What's going on in you? Because the Holy Spirit wants to put salve on those wounds. But also, on the other hand, there's good things. When you're happy... When things are going well, when you're aware of those things, the Holy Spirit also wants to turn your wonder into worship. God's common grace, his gift to all of us, and the things we experience every day that make us light and happy, those things the Holy Spirit can take and point us to God. It become a transcendent experience where we realize: wow, the gift is this good? How much better is the giver? And so you can't really have deep and abiding, rich fellowship with the Holy Spirit unless you're willing to pay attention to yourself, because he wants to address those things deep within you that you don't want to acknowledge, but he will heal, and he will make you useful if you're willing to do that. But he will also turn your wonder into worship and, and make your life characterized by just joy in him because because your wonder is turned to worship. Second way to fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Are you ready? It's gonna be really profound. Read the Bible. And I know we chuckle, but it's the first thing to go, isn't it? We're busy, we're tired, it's the most urgent thing we can do, yet it's the thing we drop first. You know, mature Christians, I've talked about mature Christians today. Mature Christians also just do the basics well. They're just in the word. To go to the Word. Now here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the let, me, let me give you some, some advice on reading the Bible. Maybe you choose one book of the Bible to read through for a month. That might be a good idea. Maybe you choose one book to read in its entirety in one sitting. Maybe you listen to it on your commute. Maybe you follow a reading plan. All good options. But do not read the Bible quickly and stoically. Do not treat it like a task Treat it like experience. Read slowly. Read introspectively. See, we're used to taking information in our information age. We're used to taking information and harnessing it to fulfill our agenda and further our plans and realize our desires. And that makes its way into our Bible reading, where we treat it like a task task. That makes us feel like we are in control of our lives, that we are people of routine, and we check that box and we walk away feeling righteous about ourselves because we've done the right thing. You miss the point completely. Here's what uh, Robert Muholland, in, in a book called Invitation to a Journey says about reading the Bible. The text opens us to God's control of our lives for God's purposes. So instead of going into time in God's word married to what we want to get out of it and holding God to our agenda or reading as rapidly as possible to amass as much information as we can in as little time as possible, we come to the text in a posture of openness to God's agenda. We read attentively, seeking not to cover as much as possible, as quickly as possible, but to plumb the depths of the text So that the text may plumb the devil. Like that. All right. Read the Bible. Bring it back here, guys. Bring it back here. But not quickly, not stoically, not like a task, but as an experience and as an opportunity. Hebrews 4 says it like this. Pay attention to this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing. The division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Like we read the Bible, analyze it critically, and you know, read it seriously, but just understand that when you're reading the Bible, it's reading you. That's the point. So do you experience that? Is that what you do? Do you read the Bible like that, with vulnerability, with malleability before God? Okay, be aware of yourself, read the Bible. Third, you ready for this? Create space to pray. After reading the Bible, after equipping yourself with God's truth, now go into time and prayer. And there's a lot of forms of prayer. We can make supplication, we can make requests, we can intercede. But right now I'm talking about prayer in its most basic form, which is going before the all-seeing, all-knowing God with my head inside my heart. You get that? Prayer in its most basic form is going before the presence of the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-loving God with my head inside my heart. That's what Psalm 42 says Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in the Lord, and then you will sing again. See what David's doing there in Psalm 42 in the most basic way of praying? He is standing before the all-seeing, all-knowing God with his head and his heart, speaking to himself and pressing truth down into his DNA. One author says this about the kind of prayer that's, that's fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That's actually this dynamic relationship with God through the Spirit. He says this, we want to move closer to God, the source and goal of our existence, but at the same time, we realize that the closer we come to God, the stronger will be his demand to let go of the many safe structures we have built around ourselves. Prayer is such a radical act because it requires us to criticize our whole way of being in the world, to lay down our old selves and accept our new self, which is Christ." Prayer, therefore, is the act of dying to all that we consider to be our own and of being born to a new existence which is not of this world. It is the act by which we divest ourselves of all false belongings and become free to belong to God and to God alone. Wow, that's that's an incredible time of prayer. Praying with God in such a way, so honestly and vulnerably, that we are divesting ourselves of all of our false belongings and false identities so that we can belong to God and to God alone. That's what it looks like to pray in a way that fellowships fellowships with God through the Spirit. But that kind of prayer is not quick. It's not one minute. That kind of prayer is a commitment, a ruthless commitment, to creating space in my life to be still before God. That's what Psalms tells us over and over Be still and know that I am God. So, our setting. You know, Jesus is returning. Just over the horizon, the sun will rise and a new day will dawn. But until that day, we are in the night. That's our setting right now. Until the age comes, the next age comes. And so here's my question for you as we end. Which one of these is God calling you to step into deeply? Deeply. Which one of these is God calling you to actually enact in your life? Fellowship with one another? Loving one another? The resource that is one another in this church and in this community? That's how we make it through the night. Or is God calling you to press into his promise? To dwell on and think about the fact that you have family reunion in the age to come. Put your hope there. Goodness, guys. Some of my greatest failures in life, my greatest mistakes and regrets has been, has been putting my hope in people, putting my hope in my job, putting my hope in opportunities. Put your hope in Christ's promise. Let that characterize your life. You'll become resilient. Is God calling you to step into that? Or is God calling you to fellowship with the Spirit, to, with Him through the Holy Spirit, to get caught up in that dance through awareness of what's going on in your own life? through reading scripture and creating space. Where is God calling you today to step into? He is. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your word. It is truth. We thank you for the promises that you give us. We thank you, God, for inviting us to get caught up in the dance, to join you in the love that is back and forth between Father, Son, and Spirit. God, I pray that we would get caught up in the dance, that we would set our eyes on the hope that we have in you that we would be highly committed to one another, to loving one another, to dying to ourselves, putting our preferences aside so that we can be a blessing to other people in this community, so that the world would take notice. God, these are, this is an incredible vision of life that you have for us. God, you tell us we can make it through these dark times in these ways. Father, I pray we would answer the call. I pray we would take seriously your words, your truth here, that they would be bound to our hearts. They would settle into our minds, that they would change the way we think and feel and change the way we walk with you. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.